Well, good afternoon, brethren. It's a privilege to be here. Good to be back in Charlotte. My wife and I got back Tuesday afternoon in the rain from uh, the UK. It's a very profitable trip, very informable, informable, <laughs> informative trip. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, Mr. King and I spoke to our congregation down in Pretoria, South Africa. I think we had over 100 brethren there. And then on Sunday, we presented a, a re- <clears throat> regional conference uh, there in Pretoria. We had about 40 people. What was really interesting, we had about a half a dozen brethren from another church of God that attended with us on the Sabbath, and then several of them attended as observers in our regional conference. It was very interesting, uh, some of the comments that they made. They said, we were blown away. We were blown away with what we heard. We went over the mission of the church. We went over what the church has been doing. And one person said, it's almost like we have been asleep for the last 15 years. So it was very encouraging. Uh, We'll see where some of these things are going to lead. Uh, Last Sabbath, Mr. King and I spoke then to our London congregation. We had, I don't know, 70, 80, 90 people there. And then we had uh, a number of other visits along the way. I wanted to uh, just mention it's good to be back. If some people bring back chocolates from Belgium, I brought back a cold. <laughs> but I got it into the U.S. duty-free. <laughs> so if you'll bear with me, uh, I didn't want to push this off on Mr. Ames today. I called him yesterday and said, would you be ready to go? He said, thank you. <laughs> So I'm working on getting over this. Hopefully we'll make it through today. I want to ask you, just like to see a show of hands. How many of you have begun attending with the Living Church of God in the last five years? Okay. I can't do a Mr. Ames immediate calculation, but I would guess 40% maybe, 45%. Um, Most of you probably realize, that those of you that have begun attending with us, that many mainstream churches view the Church of God as a cult because we don't keep Christmas, we don't keep Easter, we keep the Sabbath, we keep the Holy Days. We're viewed as a cult in spite of the facts that Jesus Christ kept the Sabbath, Jesus Christ kept the Holy Days, The apostles kept the Sabbath. The apostles kept the Holy Days. None of them kept Christmas. None of them kept Easter. And for decades, actually for about 300 years after the days of the apostles, there were Christians that were keeping the Sabbath and keeping the Holy Days and not keeping Christmas and not keeping Easter. But that's why we're viewed today as a cult by some. Again, I wouldn't let that bother you. You look up the definition of a cult. A cult is an organization that does not believe the same as the mainstream. A cult is an organization that does not follow mainstream teaching. And if the mainstream doesn't agree with the scriptures, then the problem is with the mainstream. So you might want to keep some of those things in mind. Others, critics today, view the Church of God and the members of the Church of God as suffering from a disease. 
called prediction addiction because we have been interested for 70-some years in Bible prophecy. We write about it, we preach about it, I'm going to talk about it today. But we do this for a number of reasons. In the sermon today, I'd like to ask and answer a number of questions that deal with Bible prophecy. So I'd like you to think about some of these things as we begin. Why has the Church of God focused on Bible prophecy for more than 70 years? Why have we been focused on Bible prophecy? Why don't other churches today, especially mainstream churches, focus on Bible prophecy? Why don't they? And why do we? Why did God send a series of prophets to ancient nations of Israel and Judah? Why did he send them? What was their purpose? What was their mission? And how does that relate to what we're doing today? Why is nearly one-third of the Bible devoted to prophecy? For those of you that have attended other churches, were a third of the sermons that you heard devoted to prophecy? Probably not. You know, I think back to the churches that I grew up in, and I think I heard one sermon in some 20 years that I remember devoted to Bible prophecy by a, a visiting minister. And he was talking about Russia and prophecy, which is a little bit different from what we teach today. But that's all I remember. That's all I remember. Why do secular scholars and other religious leaders ignore Bible prophecy today? as we will see. And finally, what do all these questions about prophecy have to do with you today here in the Church of God? The title of the sermon today that I want to focus on is Why Prophecy? Why prophecy? Why do we have prophecy? Why do we focus on prophecy? What's it there in the Bible for? I want to show in the sermon why the Church of God has been focused for the last 70-some years on Bible prophecy and why the world and most of the churches today are not focused on Bible prophecy. And I want to show how this relates to each of us today. Somebody mentioned to me before church that I hope you give a motivating sermon. I want it to be motivating. I want it to be exciting as we come to see why we're here And how the church of God differs from the other churches in the world today. So this is where I want to go. I want to talk about seven major questions or address seven major questions in the sermon. And if my voice holds out, we'll make it to the end. If it doesn't, I may have to call on Mr. Ames. He says, no, 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 no. (laughs) But we will try Question number one, why has the Church of God had a major focus on Bible prophecy for the last 70-some years? Why have we been focused in that direction, especially when the world and most Christian churches today are not focused on Bible prophecy? Over the last decade or so, I've made kind of a little hobby out of listening to whatever the Pope speaks about for his Christmas message and his Easter message. And while I was living in England, I would focus on what the Archbishop of Canterbury would talk about on his, Christi- on his Christmas message or 
their Easter messages. And basically, they talk about peace. We need peace. We need peace. Let's light some candles for peace. Uh, Let's pray for peace. Uh, Let's say some rosaries for peace. But this is their message. Uh, A little experiment I did a number of years ago, and then I repeated it very quickly yesterday. I went through about 10 years' worth of issues of Christianity Today magazine a number of years ago, looking for articles on Bible prophecy. And in 10 years, I think they publish about 12 times a year, I found one article on Bible prophecy. It was about Israel in prophecy. And what I remember from the article was the author said, since most of these prophecies have not come true, they will probably never come true. And this was the gist of the article on Bible prophecy on Israel. I borrowed a couple of issues yesterday from Mr. Ames and leafed through very quickly, and there was none, no articles on Bible prophecy. They talked about gay rights. They talked about loving Jesus. They talked about this, that, and the other thing. But there was nothing on Bible prophecy. So why have we been focused and the world has not? I don't want to come up with answers. What I'd like to do is look at the scriptures. Very quickly in this first question that we're dealing with. In Matthew 24, Jesus was talking with his disciples. And he tells his disciples to do something very specific. Matthew 24, we'll break in here in uh, verse 42. It says, Watch therefore, for you do not know the hour your Lord is coming. So Jesus was telling his disciples, Watch for Bible prophecies coming true, being fulfilled. And he gave a whole list of things to look for. But he said, Watch, keep your eyes open, stay focused, so that you're not surprised. About seven different times in Matthew 24, 25, Mark 13, Luke 21, Jesus said, watch world events. Watch for the confluence of world events. When world events start to resemble what Bible prophecies say will happen just before the end of the age, he said, watch for those things. If you go to Second Thessalonians, or First Thessalonians, um, Chapter 5 and verse 6, Paul was saying basically the same thing. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 6, Paul is writing some 20 years later. He says, Therefore, let us not sleep, let us stay alert, as others, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Let's stay focused on what's happening so that we're not surprised when Jesus Christ returns. So why do we talk about Bible prophecy? Because Jesus told his disciples, watch Bible prophecy. Watch world events. Watch for the confluence of world events and Bible prophecies. Number two, Jesus' message was prophetic. You go to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Notice what Jesus was talking about at the very beginning of his ministry. Matthew 24 was towards the end. But in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Jesus began his ministry. What, is he, what was he talking about? He says, Now, after John was put in prison, Mark 1, 14, 
Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. He's talking about a coming kingdom, a coming government of God on this earth. His gospel was prophetic. So we need to be watching for these things. It gives us hope in the future. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4 is a prophecy in the book of Isaiah. It said that the law is going to go forth from Jerusalem. And people will be beating their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Peace will come when Christ returns and sets up his government on this earth. It's a very prophetic thing. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, it talks about the government. The government of God is going to be on the shoulders of Jesus Christ when he returns. And he's going to rule with justice and with mercy. This is what we're looking forward to. It's prophetic. It's something to talk about in terms of Bible prophecy. A third reason is that Jesus taught something very simple, very specific. If you turn to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4, Christ was dealing with uh, the temptation from Satan. One of his responses in verse 4 of chapter 4 of Matthew, he answered uh, this temptation of Satan, says it's written that man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Okay, if the Bible is one-third prophecy, roughly, then we need to be looking into Bible prophecy. We can't ignore it. Another scripture in um, 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. These are reasons why we have focused as a church on Bible prophecy. Not just because it's exciting and scintillating and you know, mysterious. These are very practical instructions that we find in Scripture. Second Timothy chapter 3, <clears throat> verses 16 and 17. Paul is writing to Timothy, giving him instructions of what to preach about and how to function as a pastor. It says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All Scripture, that includes the one-third, roughly, that is Bible prophecy, is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, that is, for things that we believe, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. One-third of the Bible is prophecy. The Bible contains about 1,800 specific prophecies about 300 specific prophecies about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what Paul is saying here is all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and reproof. We're going to look at some of these prophecies this afternoon. You can't ignore Bible prophecy. You know, one individual was saying in one of the other church groups, he said, we don't want to talk about the bad news, this prophecy stuff. We just want to talk about the good news, you know, that God loves you and that you can love Jesus and you can go to heaven, things like that. You can't ignore one-third of the Bible whenever Paul says that it's given for instruction in righteousness. We're to learn from it. Prophecy is not expendable. Prophecy is important. It's there for a reason. Let's look at one other scripture. 
one other reason why the church of God has focused on Bible prophecy. Acts chapter 20. <clears throat> Acts chapter 20, Paul is speaking to the elders of the church in Ephesus. He probably assumed he'd never see them again, but this is what he was talking with them about. You know, if you had a chance to talk maybe with your family or close friends and you realized I'm never going to see you again, what would you talk about? How's the weather? No, you'd probably talk about something very important to you, that you want concepts to be understood. And that's what Paul is doing here in Acts chapter 20. We'll just focus on one of the verses. In verse 27, Paul says, I've not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. The word for counsel here in the Greek is boule, B-O-U-L-E, boule. And it means plan or purpose. Paul is saying, I've not shunned to declare unto you the whole plan of God. And that plan is outlined in Bible prophecy. I've not shunned to declare unto you the whole purpose of God, the reason that you're here, what God raised up a church for. Paul explained these things and made it very clear. So this is why the church of God has focused on Bible prophecy. It's not that we have a disease called prediction addiction. We're instructed to focus in these directions by Jesus Christ. Christ was focused on Bible prophecy. The apostles were focused on it. The Bible is approximately one-third of uh, prophecy, and God inspired the Bible, so it was obviously important to God. And this is why we are focused on Bible prophecy. Now, critics can laugh and critics can scoff and make all kind of fun and games and whatever, but... I tried to answer the question, why has the church of God been focused on Bible prophecy for 70 years? Because the scriptures tell us to do that. The scriptures focus us on those things. Next question. Why is nearly one-third of the Bible devoted to Bible prophecy? And why is predicting the future or predicting future events important to Christians or anyone else for that matter? The Bible is about the one true God. The Bible is about the one true God. And the Bible, as we just read in 2 Timothy 3.16, claims to be the inspired word of God. Bible prophecy is actually proof of divine inspiration. The Bible reveals things about the future names of individuals, events that would take place. It reveals these things, in some cases hundreds, in some cases thousands of years before the events ever occurred. Human beings can't do that. Human beings can't do that. You know, the prophecies in the Old Testament talking about the city of Tyre and the city of Sidon, they're both on the eastern edge of the Mediterranean. In the case of Tyre, it said it would be destroyed, never be rebuilt. Sidon would continue with a bloody history. Now, these prophecies were given <clears throat> 500 to 1,000 B.C., so 2,500 years ago. That would be like saying, uh, you know, 1,000 years from now or 2,000 years from now, Charlotte will be a huge city and Atlanta will disappear. How do you know? How can human beings say things like that unless there is a God 
that reveals certain things and then brings it to pass. I was reading in one of the books about Mr. Armstrong. It said that when he began studying Bible prophecy, he began to realize the Bible really is inspired because human beings can't make predictions like that. But the Bible is filled, as I said, with about 1,800 specific predictions Specific predictions, not general things, but specific things. And Bible prophecy is proof that there is a real God that says things and then brings those things to pass. This is one of the reasons a third of the Bible is prophecy. The prophets of old that are recorded in the Bible did make specific prophecies because God inspired them to do that as Paul mentioned in 2 Timothy. I would encourage you, brethren, if you've not done so yet, especially for young people, how do you know that God exists? How do you know the Bible is the inspired Word of God? How do you know? How do you really know? I'd encourage you to read the booklets that we have on the proof of the Bible or the Bible factor fiction and the booklet on the real God. Nail these things down. I remember when I first came into the church, one of the pastors that was working with me, he said, you're going to need to back your mind into a corner once in a while, and don't let it out (laughs) of that corner until it admits, yes, this is true. You know, I've used this example before. One of the fellows I roomed with at college, we both came to Ambassador College with a degree. We both wound up teaching on the faculty. Then some years later, we both, we both wound up as pastors out in the field. And when the things began to change, the doctrines began to change in the Worldwide Church of God, he began preaching the new doctrines. And some of his congregation came up to him and said, how can you preach what you once proved was not, was not true? And he kind of backed into a corner. He said, well, I, 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 I didn't prove everything. I didn't prove everything. You know, if you don't take the time to prove what is true, that there really is a God, how do you know? That the Bible is the inspired word of God, how do you know? What are the proofs? Write them down. Make lists of these things. But nail these things down, and if you do that, nobody's going to blow you away with other doctrines and other ideas. But you've got to take the time to do that. You've got to take the time to do that. Let's look at one other scripture in 2 Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> the prophets weren't just writing things that came into their mind. You know, some people think they were on drugs and they were hallucinating and they were writing things down. And This is not how prophecies came. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Other translations would make it sound like uh, they are not matters of personal opinion. This is what it means to me. For prophecy never came by the will of man... But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by God's Spirit, that God was inspiring them to record certain things. 
The Bible prophecy is a very powerful proof that there is a real God. These prophecies came from God, according to the scriptures. And this is why the prophets could predict the future of cities and nations uh, and other events before those events actually happen. So prophecy is not something to take lightly. It's in the Bible for a reason. A third of the Bible is prophecy, and it's there for our instruction today. Number three, who were the prophets that God sent to ancient Israel and ancient Judah? Why did he send them? Why did he take the time to do that? The prophets were active from roughly 800 B.C. to about 400 B.C. They were active during the decline and fall of Israel, the nation of Israel, and the nation of Judah. What was their mission? What was their purpose? Just a little bit of background information. The Old Testament talks about priests and Levites and prophets. And they're not always the same thing. They had different roles. The Levites were the sons of Levi, the tribe of Levi, one of Jacob's 12 sons. And they served in the temple. They set up the tabernacle, took it down, prepared the sacrifices. They also functioned as civil uh, administrators in the nation of Israel, the Levites. The priests were the sons of Aaron, and they taught the laws of God to the people. The Levites and the priests were hereditary roles. In other words, if your dad was a Levite, you were going to be a Levite. (laughs) If your dad was a priest, you're going to be a priest. These were hereditary roles. The prophets were called individually by God. Some were priests. Some were of royal blood. But they were individuals called by God for a reason. They were not hereditary. They were called by God for a very special purpose. That purpose was to remind the leaders of Israel and Judah and to remind the people of Israel and Judah of the conditions of the covenants that their forefathers had entered into. We can look at just a couple things quickly. In Exodus chapter 19, Exodus chapter 19, for several verses there, where the Israelites were gathering around Sinai, they'd come out of Egypt, God was about to give them his laws. But God was entering into a covenant, an agreement, that had conditions for the Israelites and also had conditions for God. But he said, if you obey me, I'm going to do this. If you disobey, there will be consequences. But this was a covenant, and they entered into it. Verse 5 of Exodus 19. Now, if you will indeed obey the voice, my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, and these are the words that you shall speak to the children of Israel. And all the people said, we will do this. But this was the covenant that the forefathers of the Israelites entered into. You look at another set of scriptures over in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 4. God gave the Israelites his laws to set them apart the rest of the world to be examples to the world. 
Now, Deuteronomy was given to the Israelites, actually the second generation of the Israelites that came out of Egypt. First generation made some mistakes, wandered for 40 years in the wilderness till they died. Just before their children, the second generation entered into the promised land. Moses was told, you repeat the covenant again, repeat these laws again so they understand what I'm doing with them. But I'd encourage you to read through chapter 4. <coughs> In verse 1 it says, <clears throat> Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and judgments which I teach you to observe. The people are told today these laws are a burden, but the reason that God gave the laws to the Israelites that you may live, that your life may be good, and you may go in and possess the land which the Lord your fathers, the God of your fathers, is giving to you. It says, Don't add to these things, don't take any away. Take away anything, just follow them. Verse 9, only, let, only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, how God delivered you out of Egypt. But they were to be lights and examples to the world. This was why God gave the Israelites his laws. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, again, the, the setting for why God gave the laws to the Israelites. They were not burdens. They were to set the Israelites apart from the rest of the world. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 and 7. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples of the face of the earth. The reason was he chose them he gave them his laws so they would set an example to the world. That was the purpose. That was the reason. Verse 7, The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. In other words, they weren't any better than anybody else. They were slaves in Egypt. For you were the least of all people. But because the Lord loves you, because he would keep the oath which he swore to your forefathers... This is why he chose the Israelites. They were to be examples to the world. Okay, the role of the prophets was these chosen people began looking over the fence where the grass was greener. Well, they have a king over there. And they, they can see their gods. They have this big idol. They can see their god. We don't have an idol like that. And they do all these exciting things. You look at some of the perverted practices that they got into that would draw people. It was exciting. But the Israelites turned their back on God, began to worship idols, began to do wrong things, and this was when God sent the prophets. And their message was, you're turning away from God. You're forgetting the truth. You're turning your back on God. And there will be consequences if you continue going that way. The reason the prophets were sent was because the Israelites and then later the Jews, or the nation of Israel and then the, the Jewish nation, the nation of Judah, were turning away from God. They were drifting into apostasy. In some cases, drifting in. In other cases, being led in. In other cases, being pushed in. And God sent the prophets to warn the nations of Israel and the nations of Judah. What was going to happen if they continued to go in that direction? 
I think it's interesting to note that Isaiah began prophesying about 740 B.C. The nation of Israel, the northern ten tribes, went into captivity around 720 B.C., about 20 years after Isaiah began prophesying. Judah went into captivity about 40 years after Jeremiah began prophesying. The question is today, how much longer do we have? We'll have to wait and see. But God sent the prophets to provide a warning. They were called the messengers of the covenants to remind the people of the conditions of the covenants. You read those conditions in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. It said if you obey, you're going to be blessed. And it lists a whole series of blessings. Is that if you turn your back on God and disobey and despise my statutes and judgments, one of those statutes and judgments that men and women should not be marrying their same kind. It's an abomination to God. But we are being pushed in that direction today by administrations, by leaders, by religious leaders. People are being pushed to do those things, to accept and tolerate things that God says are an abomination. And there's going to be consequences from these things. The prophets were sent to deliver a warning. Repent, change before it's too late. And history records what the consequences were for the Israelites and what the consequences were for the nation of Judah. They went into captivity. And there was suffering because they wouldn't listen to the prophets. Tradition says that Isaiah was tied between, between two boards and cut in half because the king Manasseh did not like what he was saying. And we may face certain things in the years ahead for saying certain things that administrations and other leaders don't want to hear. But the prophets were sent because God loved the children of Israel. He called them for a purpose, even though they turned away from that purpose. He wanted to bring them back. This is why the prophets were sent. That was question number three. Question number four, how do these ancient prophecies relate to us today? Why should we be concerned? You know, there's some people say that all these prophecies, this was for the ancient Israelites. It doesn't apply to us today. Or it's just for the Jews. It doesn't apply for us today. <clears throat> but those are theories. Those are ideas that people have. How do these ancient prophecies relate to us today? You know, scholars recognize the concept of duality in Bible prophecy. That these prophecies are dual. There was an ancient fulfillment and there's a modern fulfillment. That is not an idea that Mr. Armstrong came up with. That's not an idea that the Church of God hatched on its own. Yeah, the Bible I've got here was edited by Hank Hennegraff, the Bible Answer Man. Why do I have it? Got it for $20 on the Internet, leather-bound, wide-margin Bible. <laughs> but at the beginning, he has a little introduction to Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And he mentions there that there was a, uh, a, a near future application of these prophecies and a far future application of these prophecies. In other words, he understands the prophecies are dual. 
Those of fulfillment in the ancient world, the ultimate fulfillment will be at the end of the age. So this concept of duality needs to be understood. It can't be ignored. Uh, the, the, the prophecies are there as lessons for us today. You know, historians recognize that history tends to repeat itself. History tends to repeat itself. And yet one of the uh, writers I was studying a little bit some time ago, it says, history tends to repeat itself, but not until after a change of costume. In other words, it doesn't repeat exactly. But when the costume changes, then there will be a repetition. One of the reasons for learning the lessons of history from prophecy as well as history is hopefully that we can avoid making the same mistakes. Because, if, again, people have said if we don't learn the lessons of history, we wind up doing what? Repeating the mistakes of history. And you just look at people growing up. Uh, <clears throat> people in my generation uh, experimented with drugs, LSD, and stuff like that. People are experimenting with drugs again today. They hadn't learned the lessons that their parents should have learned, maybe never learned. It seemed like every generation growing up wants to experiment with alcohol, experiment with sex, experiment with, with smoking and other things, uh, driving fast, uh, staying out late at night or staying out all night. Uh, we, we can try and convey lessons, but sometimes people have to learn what is called the hard way. You know, when our boys were growing up in Massachusetts, I may have mentioned this here before one time that uh, <clears throat> their school was high school was coming up on graduation, and uh, several kill, kids were killed in an auto accident. And I asked the boys, I said, "What time was the auto accident?" Well, Dad, they were killed. What's time have to do with it? I said, "What time was the accident?" Well, about three o'clock in the morning. What were they doing out at 3 o'clock in the morning? It's not the best time to be out. They'd been out drinking. I think the car hit an abutment on a bridge. And it was a very tragic thing. and put a real damper on graduation that year. But they were doing things that they shouldn't have been doing at a time when they shouldn't have been doing it. And there were consequences as a result. We read lessons of history in Jeremiah 2. Hosea, chapter 4, 5, and 8. I just mentioned that Israel forgot God. They turned away from the laws of God, and God brought consequences on them. And they were punished, they were suffering, and they went into captivity because they had turned away from the God that said, look, I want to work with you. I want to use you as an example to the world, and yet you've turned away. So these things do apply to us today. What's interesting, you look around, and we've been saying this, brethren, for 40, 50, 60, 70 years. The United States, Britain, Western nations uh, are going to go down the tubes because we're turning away from God. I brought a number of books just to refer to quickly. One entitled, When Nations Die. This was written about 15 years ago. 
America on the Brink, Ten Warning Signs of a Culture in Crisis. It was talking about 15 years ago, things that were seen at that time that are coming to fulfillment today. The book was written by an American taught outside the U.S. to try and warn people about what's happening to our nation. Another book written by Patrick Buchanan ran on an independent ticket for the presidency of the United States. This came out about a year or two ago. It's entitled Suicide of a Superpower. Will America Survive to 2025? He's got some very powerful quotes. He talks about a nation that is disintegrating from within. We've been talking about these things again for 50, 60, 70 years. But here are people not part of the Church of God saying virtually the same thing. Same thing's happening in England. Book written by Peter Hitchens, who's now dead. He was an atheist. It was entitled The Abolition of Britain. He said, The nation is coming apart internally. And he's watching what's happening to his own country. Another book entitled The Death of Christian Britain. The Death of Christian Britain, written by a theologian. Basically, he makes the statement in here, one of the tragedies in Britain is that the faithful are being led by the faithless, by religious leaders that don't believe in God. They don't believe the Bible's inspired. The first sentence here says, The death of Christian Britain argues that the nation's religious core culture has been destroyed. And the consequences are very serious. But these are things that people see. We've been talking about these things, brethren, for 50 or 60 or 70 years. That if our nation doesn't repent, if it doesn't turn around and go in a different direction then we too are going to go down the tubes just like the ancient nation of Israel and just like the ancient nation of Judah. We are witnessing the duality of prophecy today. We're watching these things come to pass today. This is not something to play games with. Our nations today are making the same mistakes that the Israelite nations made 2,000 years ago. Why aren't other churches preaching about Bible prophecy? Question number five. Why aren't other churches, Christian churches, quote-unquote, preaching about Bible prophecy? Again, the Bible answers the question. We don't have to make up answers for these things. Turn to Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah chapter 56. The Bible explains why... The mainline churches today don't say much about Bible prophecy. Isaiah 56, verses 8 to 11. In verse 8, it says, The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel. So Israel is the subject of this particular section of Scripture. Yet I will gather him, others besides those who are gathered to him. All you beasts of the field come and devour. So they... Other nations are going to devour Israel. But notice in verse 10 and 11, his, and that's Israel's, watchmen are blind. The watchmen of Israel are blind. They're all ignorant. They cannot bark. Sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber, 
Yes, they are greedy dogs which have never enough, and they are shepherds who cannot understand. What Isaiah is saying is the the shepherds of Israel, the watchmen of Israel, are blind. They don't know what to watch for. They don't understand where world events are going. That's why the Pope and that's why the Archbishop of Canterbury and many other preachers talk about love and peace and gentleness. Those are human desires and those are not wrong. But they don't understand the direction that world events are going. They don't understand the significance of what's taking place in the nations that they serve, among whom they serve. But Isaiah prophesied this about 700 B.C., In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus had some very similar words to say about the religious leaders of his day. Matthew chapter 15, verses 12 through 14. Now to understand the context, you have to look up at verse 8 and 9 where Jesus was quoting Isaiah. He says, these people draw near to me with their mouth. Tomorrow morning, there'll be a lot of people in churches here in the United States, a lot fewer in churches in England or Europe on Sunday mornings. They just don't go. But Jesus is talking here. These people, people around him, draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And in vain do they worship me, teaching those doctrines, the commandments of men. That is okay to keep Christmas. It's okay to keep Easter. You don't have to keep the Sabbath. You don't have to keep the Holy Days. You don't follow. The, you don't have to follow those Old Testament dietary laws. And I've heard sermons here in Charlotte where the preacher is saying basically these same things. In verse 12, it says, Then his disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying, that they were blind? But Jesus answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. He's talking about religious leaders. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, they both fall into the ditch. What Jesus is saying is the religious leaders of his day were blind to the truth. They didn't understand Bible prophecies. They didn't understand the plan of God. They didn't understand the big picture. And that was what Jesus had to say about religious leaders in his day. Go to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, Paul is talking here about the Israelite peoples. Romans 10, verse 1 to 3. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. A lot of people today believe that God exists. I think in the United States, some 90-some percent. That probably varies from year to year. But some 90% believe in God. If you ask the next question, would you believe the Bible's inspired? Well, (laughs) that's another story. Do you believe we have to live by those laws of God? No, not really. Those are for the Jews. All these things that float around today. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness 
Well, I can be righteous if I go to church on Sunday. I can be righteous if I keep Christmas because I'm not doing it for pagan reasons. I'm just, you know, celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ, even though he wasn't born on December 25th. See, people don't follow these things the whole way through. Seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Down to verse 11, verse 7. And Paul is here talking about the Israelites have been blinded so that the Gentiles can come into the church, provides an opportunity. God's plan is bigger than just a certain group of people. We have the opportunity today to become spiritual Israelites coming from all different backgrounds, but heirs to the promises. This is something, again, that most people don't understand. But in verse 7, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained, and the rest were blinded. Brethren, you have been called to be part of God's elect, part of God's first fruits, to be the first fruits in the kingdom of God. It's an incredible calling. If your mind has been open to understand that, that's because God has reached into your brain and adjusted the dials so you can see. So you can see. You know, my mom was a Sunday school teacher. My dad was a deacon and an elder in churches that we belonged to. Whenever my brother and I came in contact with the church of God, they called a minister to try and save us (laughs) from this cult. And to get us straightened out. Well, the minister couldn't answer some of our questions. He just didn't understand. And my dad was not overly religious, but he began watching Mr. Armstrong. And some 15 or 20 years later, before he died, he said, Mr. Armstrong really seemed to understand the Bible. But then how do you know? My dad was never called. It never really made sense to him. It was interesting. We talked about Bible prophecy in Germany and whatever else. It was interesting to him, but he never got the big picture. You know, I'm looking forward to the time when I'll be able to sit down and say, Dad, this is what, what it was all about. This is what it was all about. But unless God gives you that understanding, and some of you young people think, well, I, I don't know whether I'm called or not. If what I'm saying makes sense to you, don't play games with that. Don't play games with that. We only have so much more time before all this stuff is going to come together. And when it comes together, it's probably going to come together very rapidly. And if you're not ready, when these things begin to happen, you're liable to be left behind. Because unless you've made a commitment to... Give your life to God to be forgiven, to be baptized, to dedicate yourself to a way of life. Let me use an example. Maybe you are really attracted to a certain kind of car. Maybe your mom and dad said, if you're good, I'll get this for you. Or I'll get you the the car of your choice. So you're looking through catalogs and you find one. You can go to the dealership. You can sit in the car. You can smell the car. They'll let you drive it around the block. But they're not going to give you the keys until you sign on the dotted line and you make a commitment to make the payments. And if you renege on the payments, then they take the car. 
You may be excited about being in the kingdom of God. Boy, that'd be great. Pet lions and do all these things. You know, one of the things we did on our trip, I wanted to mention to you, we had one free day in South Africa. And we took uh, the same horseback ride through the uh, game preserve that the kids at camp did this summer. I wanted to take it so I could come back and talk about it and maybe encourage some of you young people. If you'd like to go to summer camp in South Africa and be a camper or a counselor, save your pennies, lots of pennies. <laughs> and you'd be able to do some of those things. It was really exciting, just riding through about two and a half hours. There's some rolling hills. It was basically grassland and some trees. And riding through herds of wildebeests, riding around some giraffes that were sitting there on the horse looking up at these things. I uh, saw several uh, warthogs. They're funny little things that uh, when they start running, their tail goes boop, straight up. And they go, tut, tut, tut. <laughs> go running. But it, was, it was a very exciting experience. But this is something you could set some goals for yourself. Tell your mom, dad, I'd like to go to South Africa to camp one of these days. And they'll probably, dad will say, wash my car a hundred times. And <laughs> Maybe possible, but set some goals like that for yourself. Uh, it was really exciting to be able to do that. Uh, at the end of the ride, we came up to a lion enclosure, and they had some real lions in there. The chain link fences were about 12 feet tall, and two of the lions that were right by the, the fence had been raised on a bottle, so they were tame. <laughs> So my wife went over to the fence, and this lion was right there, and she reached through and touched the lion's nose. And she still has five fingers. <laughs> but it was exciting. Uh, <clears throat> they feed the lions. Uh, they had some other wild ones in a bigger part of the, the park. But they feed them every Sunday. And the uh, guy that was riding horses with us, he said, you know, you could almost, almost walk into the lion closure on Monday because the lions will be full. But he said, almost. <laughs> That's no guarantee. But it was exciting just to be there and see what South Africa had to offer. <clears throat> but in terms of Bible prophecy, you know, in terms of Bible prophecy, Isaiah 11 says the lion is going to lay down with the lamb. A little child will lead them. How would you like to have a pet lion that would just curl up beside you that you could play with? This guy that was riding horses with us, he's an employer, I mean, he's an employee there. He said, you know, these young lions, are, they're, they're fun, but they, when a lion's claws emerge, they can't pull them back in real quickly. So, so they can get kind of rough unintentionally if you start playing with them. <coughs> But if God changes the nature of these animals, it's going to be very exciting. It's going to be very exciting. We got within as close to these chairs down here, to giraffes and a number of other things. Uh, but they're God's creatures, a very beautiful area, very peaceful area. Uh, but these are opportunities that I would encourage you to think about taking advantage of uh, as these opportunities arise. <laughs> But again, we're talking about Bible prophecy. When God changes the nature of animals, whenever the lion will lay down with the lamb, a little child will lead them. This is what's coming eventually. But this is beyond the chaos that we're going to see in the years just ahead. 
The Bible tells us again very plainly. Let's look at one other scripture. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 3 and 4, why doesn't the world understand what we're talking about today? And this is not to put down anybody, brethren. This is what the scriptures tell us. Scriptures that I never knew were in the Bible until I came into contact with the church of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. said, but if our gospel is veiled, in other words, if people don't understand what we're talking about, is veiled to those who are perishing, those who God has not called, those who God has not opened their minds, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon them. You know, people are told today the Bible's not inspired. The Bible's just like any other book. Uh, you know, the prophets really didn't live before the prophecies. They actually lived afterwards. We're just reading what they wrote after the fact. You know, they talk about Isaiah was probably four different people. Uh, it was the first Isaiah, second Isaiah, third Isaiah, fourth Isaiah. And what's interesting is there is no biblical evidence, there is no evidence in the history of the Jews or in Christian history that there were more than one Isaiah. These are theories that people have come up with. And they undermine the accuracy of the Bible. They undermine <coughs> the trustworthiness of the Bible. But these are ideas that are thrown around. Remember hearing a preacher say, I don't preach much about prophecy because I don't understand it. And yet he's a preacher. As I mentioned, Christianity Today doesn't publish articles about Bible prophecy because they don't understand and they don't see the relevance. They think it only applies to ancient Israel, not modern Israel. Okay, question number seven. <clears throat> How does Bible prophecy apply to the church of God and nations today? Again, the Bible has a number of very interesting scriptures that we need to be aware of and put in context. You go to Amos chapter 3. This is the God that we worship. Amos chapter 3 and verse 7. Amos comes after Hosea. Amos 3.7 says, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. Now, God isn't going to spring some big surprise on the world. Before these things happen at the end of the age, the world is going to know what's coming. And God is going to use human instruments to make that very plain and clear. And it appears that we are going to have an opportunity to play a part in that. But this is God's promise. He does nothing. He will do nothing unless he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. You know, the people in ancient Israel didn't just wake up one morning and find out, well, we're in captivity. How did we get here? We had no idea what was coming. The Jews that went to Babylon didn't wake up one morning. How did we get here? don't understand. No, they'd been told. Isaiah was telling people for 20 years 
before the downfall of Israel, the captivity by the Assyrians. Jeremiah was doing this for 40 years before it happened. They knew what was going to happen. They didn't believe. And as a result, they paid the penalty. We've been saying some of these things for 60 or 70 years. It's going to get even stronger in the years just ahead. Not everybody's going to believe it, but some will. What are the prophets supposed to do? Isaiah 58, verse 1. This is what Isaiah was told to do. This is what we're striving to do today. Isaiah was told, cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgressions. Tell them what's right and tell them what's wrong. Homosexuality is wrong. Same-sex marriage is wrong. (coughs) Adultery and fornication is wrong. Lying and stealing is wrong. And if we don't do these things, brethren, we're going to be held accountable for these things. God sent the prophets to warn ancient Israel and Judah over a period of some 400 years to warn them about what was coming. And I think it's utterly inconceivable as we approach the end of the age if God does not have a series of prophets doing exactly the same thing. Somebody's going to be doing this and doing it in a very powerful way because this is how God operates. He doesn't just spring his secrets suddenly. I encourage you to go back and read Ezekiel chapter 3 and Ezekiel 33. I remember in a Bible study that the pastor gave when I was first coming into the church. The message of Ezekiel is that the Israelites are going to go into captivity. But the irony is they were already in captivity. (laughs) They'd been carried off 120 years before. So he wasn't delivering a belated message. Well, I'm sorry I'm 120 years late, but you're going to go into captivity. No. The message is for the future, for a future body of Israelites that were turning their back on God. They, too, would go into captivity. Dr. Meredith talks a lot about the Ezekiel warning. If you look at chapter 33, chapter 33 of Ezekiel, this was Ezekiel's mission. (coughs) You've got to read about the first 10 or 11 verses. Basically what it says there, if you see the, the, the things coming, the sword, trouble coming, and you're a watchman, and you sound an alarm and people listen, then they'll be spared and you'll be spared. But if you see the sword coming and you don't say anything, and people die and suffer as a result, says their blood is going to be on your shoulders. We can't ignore these messages. We can't ignore these warnings. We can't ignore these instructions. Ezekiel was in Babylon among the captives, But the Israelites had been carried captive a hundred years before. So this is the context that is here. How does this apply to us today? Let's look at Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus was talking to his disciples, and he gives them a mission. 
In verse 5, the, the, these 12, Jesus sent out and commanded them, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, nor enter into the city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. For the disciples to fulfill that command from Jesus Christ, to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, they had to know who these people were and where these people were. Dr. Hay had written a couple of articles years ago on where did the 12 apostles go Mr. King did a series of television programs recently pointing out graphically where the apostles went they went up into southern Russia they went over into Parthia east of the uh, Tigris and Euphrates they went down into North Africa And a number of them went through Spain and then up into the British Isles. Why did they go there? Because there were Israelites up there. And Jesus had told them to go there. One of the keys that God has given to his church today is to understand the identity of the Israelite nations. They're not any more important than anybody else. But God made a covenant with them, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He said, if if you obey me, follow my instructions, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you the gates of your enemies. You're going to prosper and become a nation, a great nation, and a great company of nations. God has fulfilled those prophecies. Nobody else fulfills those prophecies like the United States and the British Commonwealth Nations. But we have been blessed incredibly for those of you that have traveled outside the U.S. Go down to Mexico, go to South America, go to other places. The nations that God has blessed have been blessed incredibly. Not because they're any better than anybody else, but because God made a covenant. He said, I'm going to do these things. I'm going to bring these things to pass. But those covenants had conditions. If you turn away there are going to be serious consequences. And part of our job is to make those consequences known today. But understanding where the Israelite nations are today gives us a focus for our ministry. Understanding the identity of Germany as Assyria in Bible prophecy is another key to understanding Bible prophecy. Mr. Armstrong was saying back in the 30s, Germany is going to come back and lead Europe based on Isaiah chapter 10, where God says the Assyrian is going to be used as a rod of anger in my hands. The book came out last year, entitled German Europe by Ulrich Beck. He's a very renowned sociologist. He's German. And he says, Germany is being thrust into a position of leadership today. See, God is working out a plan. He's working out a purpose. We have been talking about this for 50, 60, 70 years. And based on our understanding of where the Israelite nations are today and some of the other nations, we've been able to say things with a sense of power and with a sense of authority that other preachers have not been able to speak with. Let's go back to 2 Peter again, chapter 1. 2 Peter, chapter 1. 
verse 19. And Peter is saying here, So we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning stars arise. The old King James says, We have a more sure word of prophecy. And when you look at this in several different commentaries and so on, there are a couple of different meanings here. One is that we have the confirmed word of Bible prophecy. We know what Bible prophecy says. <coughs> and we can trust that. But there's another way of reading this is that we have a more sure word of prophecy. Mr. Armstrong was speaking about things very dogmatically in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. He didn't get everything right, but he got the big picture right because he understood a key to understanding Bible prophecy, which is the identity of the Israelite nations and the identity of other nations. He was able to speak with power and with conviction. I would encourage you to look up a couple of other scriptures in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where it said Jesus spoke with authority. He didn't say, well, maybe this will happen and possibly and so on. He said, this is what's going to happen. (coughs) And we can speak with that same authority if we use the key that God has given us. We don't want to throw these things away. You know, the guys that took over the... Worldwide Church of God, one of the guys wrote a book, Transformed by Truth. And he talks about the central plank that cracked. In other words, this understanding of the identity of Israel. The plank didn't crack, they threw it away. It didn't crack, they threw it away. Deliberately. And they called it a dubious theory, a bizarre belief that's unscientific and unbiblical and has no evidence. Well, it does have evidence. But they don't want to acknowledge that evidence. They say this idea of the identity of Israel is traced to a guy by the name of Richard Brothers, lived in England, but he was a Canadian, and he was nuts. And he died insane, and this is where the idea came from in the 1840s. What's interesting, you study the idea, and it goes back years before that. The Jewish philosopher Moses Maimonides lived in the 1100s. He said, I believe the Israelite tribes are in northwestern Europe. So the evidence is there for anybody that wants to look for it. The evidence that was supposedly used for this book is lacking in many, many ways. God has given his church a key to understanding Bible prophecy. The Billy Graham does not have. Most of the religious leaders today don't have. Scholars in academic circles don't understand. But God has given that to his church today so that we can deliver a very powerful message with conviction and with clarity. And brethren, this is why Bible prophecy is in the Bible. It's to set God's church apart from the rest of the world. So what does this have to do with you and me? Let's look at the scripture in Matthew. And I hope that we understand, brethren, what God has called us to be part of. 
You're not here just to be part of a little social group in Charlotte or wherever else this sermon is going to be heard after today. But notice what Jesus told his disciples. And we need to take this to heart. Matthew chapter 13, verse 10. The disciples came to Jesus and they said, Why do you speak to these people in parables? Now notice Jesus' answer. He said, He answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. God has opened your mind to understand the plan of God, to understand Bible prophecy, to understand where things are going. But he's talking to his disciples. But to them, the people outside listening but not part of the group, that Jesus was working with, but to them it has not been given. Verse 16, Jesus, after quoting Isaiah several different times, he said, Blessed are your eyes, for they see. He's talking to his disciples. The word blessed in the Greek means to be envied. How come you understand? And I don't. People will ask you that. You understand because God has called you. God has opened your mind. And never take that for granted. Blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see. To understand who the end time Assyrian empire is going to be. To understand where the end time Israelite nations are. To understand our roles in the coming kingdom of God. They desired to see and did not see, and to hear and did not hear, but you hear it and you understand. Brother, not everyone who believes in God is going to wind up in the kingdom of God. Not everyone who attends a church of God is going to wind up in the kingdom of God. Notice a warning in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. This is where it comes back to us. It's one thing to know the plan of God. It's one thing to understand some Bible prophecies. But there's another dimension that needs to be there. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, I believe in Jesus, I love God, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, to do the will of God, we've got to know where the, British, where the Israelite peoples are today. We've got to go there with a the message. We've got to deliver a message to the world about what's coming on the world. We've got to begin keeping the Sabbath and the holy days, learning to work together as a team, not as just individuals doing our own thing. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father, many will say to me in that day, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons, going to church on the Sabbath, even some of those things. But then I will declare unto them, I never knew you. We were never on the same page. You were over here. I was over there. I saw your attitude wasn't the best. You put on a smile when you came to church. And then you were doing things through the week that you shouldn't be doing. God sees those things. God knows those things. 
I will declare unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work lawlessness. Brethren, prophecy is in the Bible for a reason. It's there to prove that God inspired the scriptures. He's bringing to pass what he said he would bring to pass. It proves that there is no one else like God. God has revealed the future. He's outlined his plan and purpose in prophecy. He's given us lessons of history, what happened to the Israelites when they turned away from God. I would encourage you over the next several weeks, several months, several years, watch Bible prophecy. Watch it closely. Believe what God has said. Watch for world events coming into coherence with Bible prophecies. Because we've got a very exciting future that is also prophesied. If we build a relationship with God, build the character that we're going to need to be in the kingdom of God, we're going to reign with Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom of God, which is prophetic. That's what prophecy is all about. So, brethren, don't take prophecy lightly. It's there for a reason. We've got an exciting future, and let's share together.